you have heard of the Manning Cast, well, I would like to welcome you to the Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is two of the top brothers in compliance, Dick and Gio Gallo, talking compliance. In this podcast series, we bring them together for a free-form exploration of compliance topics. It's great insights brought to you from the co-CEOs of Ethico. Fun, witty, insightful, with a dash of the two brothers throughout. I know you'll enjoy the Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with the Brothers Gallo for yet another episode in GalloCast. I have both Nick and Gio Gallo. Gents, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having us. Glad to be here, Tom. So if you ever wondered what Thanksgiving dinner is like with the Gallo Brothers, well, you're going to find out in this podcast because we got a free-form discussion coming. We're going to start with a topic that I've just started thinking about, and you guys may be way ahead of me on this, and it relates to Ukraine. Not the current situation in Ukraine, but the situation after the war ends and the rebuild comes. Where Whether that money comes from a Marshall Plan, whether that money comes from forfeited Russian assets, whether that money comes from somewhere else, we're going to have the mother of all rebuilds and the whole world would be watching. Given the past corruption allegations out of Ukraine and the termination of several ministers recently by President Zelensky's, how would you guys think about helping a company prepare for this mother of all construction projects? What should companies that, that would do business in Ukraine be thinking about now? Well, I think we know that when money's sloshing around, there's a lot of opportunity to for dollars to go missing, you know? And I think you said it right, that it's going to be the mother of all rebuilds. And there's going to be likely money pouring in from around the world, as there has been to date in this conflict. And, you know, I mean, it sounds trite, but it's kind of in, you know, risk assessments plus internal controls. Like, how can you verify and how can you provide a high level of confidence to the people in charge and the people who care that there's not, you know, wrongdoing and corruption happening under their their watch. You know, every every company and so forth is going to be different, of course. But I just think taking a look and getting out ahead of it, right? Like with with even a simple risk risk assessment with a couple of parties from different parts of the organization, bring, bringing them together and saying, you know, where are our risks for corruption in this kind of a rebuild or in this type of a scenario can allow you to start assessing what controls you have in place and which ones you might need to tweak as the rebuild starts. That's that's kind of the approach I would take. Yeah, I would just add a layer to that, that, you know, I think if you have exposure or if your company is planning to do business, you know, in, through and during that rebuild, you probably need to earmark some of your budget and some of your time for a probably constantly changing risk stance, right? Like if you're super risk averse, then you might say, all right, well, we're not doing anything in that country for five years and then we're going to see what happens. A lot of people don't want to or can't do that. And then you, you know, you're going to have to kind of reassess the landscape, maybe test things more frequently, have a closer eye on, you know, any of the, the data or the oversight you can get to figure out, okay, this is going fine. We can kind of keep these things in place. No, we need tighter controls because all of this is, you know, a big mix of, you know, risks and compensating controls. And you're probably, you know, in a fast changing environment like that where, you know, the culture is changing, the political landscape is probably going to be changing. 
you know, probably the makeup of your workforce or your exposures is going to be changing. I think you, you you need to be ready to be running through faster learning cycles and not just set, setting a one year plan and saying, all right, I'll just check back on Ukraine in a year and see how everything went. So let me throw a wrinkle into that because we all, the three of us, typically speak to our compliance brethren or sistren, those in the compliance industry. You guys market to them. I talk to them. We all talk to each other. But how would or uh, a lot of this around Ukraine is going to be logistical? Where are you going to get your equipment from? How are you going to get your equipment in? How are you going to get your supplies in? Where is your workforce going to come from? What logistical problems will you have working in a country where the infrastructure is destroyed? How much slower will it make everything? How can or how should a compliance officer sit down with procurement, sit down with logistics, sit down with operations, and begin to try to understand the potential operational challenges a company might have, particularly a large construction company that's going to have thousands of workers or tens of thousands of workers and tons of equipment and getting equipment in, getting funds in, uh, banking, all of those things. Should compliance officer be at that table when those operational discussions are held? I mean, I absolutely think so. I think, you know, you know, you kind of started with a how question. I mean, how how they assess that is through those kinds of conversations, not sitting in, in the bubble that is their office and guessing what controls are in place. I mean, I think we've seen time and again that, you know, the people in these different operational functions are not typically trying to do things wrong. They usually want to do uh, the right things this despite what we may sort of think about them and having those kinds of conversations and making it not my problem as the compliance officer, but our problem as leaders in the business is how you can start to uncover, you know, what's in place, what's not, what's not, not in place, what things have I not thought about that they already have covered and vice versa to get to a more collaborative solution that I think can actually reduce the risks that we're talking about. Yeah. I think you want to, you know, maybe try to think about three different scenarios and try to land yourself in the second one in the middle. One is, the compliance officer says, we ain't doing nothing in Ukraine until I get a great compliance program in there. So nobody try to do anything until I'm sure that there's no risk with anything that we do. That might be how they think you're going to come in. Or, you know, option three is on the other end of the spectrum. Well, just do whatever you want, because who knows how to, you know, how to manage a program in this. So once you guys are all set up, then we'll put a compliance, you know, program and controls and monitoring and, you know, policies and stuff over it once everything is set up. I don't think you want either of those. Right. You you shouldn't want either of those. You want something that's collaborative. And I think that, you know, if your company is, you know, kind of uh, reassessing or reentering that country, it, you know, in the midst of this turmoil and rebuild, I think you want, this is a great chance for a rebrand. This is a great chance for you to go to those teams and sit down with them and say, listen, I bet that you think that I'm going to come in here and tell you you can't do anything. I bet that you think that I don't want you to do anything until I approve everything. Listen, that's not what's going to happen. If we're entering here, if we're entering, you know, re-entering this market or ramping up, there's going to have to be us figuring this out. What I want to do is this and however you want to describe it. I want to understand what's going on and try to make sure that we don't have to undo something and you waste your time or whatever it is. And you going into that, you got to know, hey, you know what? This is probably not going to be my compliance program in a stable EU country or in my home headquarter country. So this program needs to kind of maybe be flexible, maybe, you know, give some more power and check on the back end or, you know, collaborate more through it. But there's a great chance to sit down and say, hey, this is not going to be what you think it is. But what we do need to do is let's work on it together because I can help you do your job. 
because that's really what compliance should be doing, not just looking at how how we can absolutely eliminate all risk, you know, the rest of the business's goals, you know, notwithstanding, it should be, hey, we need to make a balanced approach that allows us to get what we all want to be done, what, you know, the mission is, what, you know, what the CEO or the board or the company decides we need to do. And that is a mix of risk mitigation and risk monitoring and, you know, being inventive as an operational team. And you should insert yourself as a part of that conversation. Jill, let me pick up on something you said, because I'm not quite sure I've heard it this way before. Let's start with the premise that with every great business, every great risk, it's a potentially great business opportunity because the risk is so high. But what right. I heard you say, Gio, was if there's a great business risk, compliance has an opportunity. And you said yeah. perhaps a rebrand, but if there's a great business risk and compliance can deliver, not in a traditional way, but working with the business to manage, to assess those risks, manage those risks, put in a risk manage, risk mitigation strategy, monitor it, and then update it as needed. That strikes me as a great opportunity for compliance to show we can be on the cutting edge of a highly risky business venture, yet still do business ethically and in compliance, and hopefully at the end of the day, made a big profit out of it. So, you know, perhaps there's compliance might want to start thinking in those terms. Well, I think we have to get opportunistic to your point. Like when that risk comes up, that is a great time for you to get opportunistic and fight this main battle that I think we have to fight. And that's this branding battle, which, you know, we're always talking about and we're always alluding to, but how powerful is it to go to that? So let me just tell you, I was, do, we were working on a deal and this attorney said this thing and it stuck with me and I love the line. And so she said, we were talking about this particular risk in this contract. And she said, now, do you want me to give you my lawyer answer or do you want me to give you my business person answer? And that right there totally reframed the conversation. It showed me where she was at. And then we got to kind of a common sense answer. She didn't have to go into what her lawyer answer would have even been. The, the fact is the fact, you know, the fact that she was able to sort of draw that distinction between these two different, you know, ways of approaching the problem helped instantly rebrand her in my mind and let the rest of the things that we were going through go so much more smoothly because I didn't feel that sort of adversarial thing of like, this is a lawyer, no offense, Tom, this is a lawyer who doesn't really get business that, you know, this is just a lawyer who is all just, you know, they want to eliminate all the risk. She brought some common sense to it. And so to, to Gio's point, like we're constant, you know, we're always selling all of us in ethics and compliance. We are really in a persuasion role, despite what we may think it's non-sale selling. We're not selling, you know, car or something else like that, but we're selling ideas and we're selling a way of thinking. And we need to persuade the other human beings in our organization, at least to engage in an authentic way to be human sensors. And we need to engage with them. And we need, we need to persuade them in our line of thinking to help us be effective. That's the only way we're able to integrate with the organization. So there's always opportunities for us to like take advantage of the circumstances to like fight that rebrand and at, you know, bring more sort of like persuasive power to our interactions. But it just takes that slight little tweak in our, in our mindset to take advantage of these opportunities as they present themselves. Yeah. I would just say that growth comes when you're outside of your comfort zone. Yep. And if there's something you don't like about how compliance is treated, viewed, budgeted, followed, looked to, sought for advice, whatever it is, if there's something you don't like about it, you have two options. You can wait until all of the employees in your organization turn into compliance champions through turnover or achieving nirvana, or you can do something to influence that. 
And if you don't feel like waiting for everyone, you know, everyone in every division to just love compliance and ethics, then it's up to you to get a little outside of your comfort zone and say, what do I have to lose if I approach this conversation a little differently? What if I listen more than I command? Or what if I, you know, like, you know, propose some solutions or whatever it takes to do that? But you got to do it. And yes, this is this is a huge opportunity. And you, like the weird thing here, Tom, is that like, yes, there's a bunch of risk that something goes wrong if, you know, you know, the kind of thought experiment we're going through is, you know, you're rebuilding your operations in the Ukraine. Yeah, there's a risk that something goes on wrong. But also there's actually a much lower career risk for you because everyone knows that it's a mess. So getting in there and right. approaching it differently and saying, okay, well, hey guys, we got to adjust because we can't have another one of these transactions happening. We got to change this thing. That's not nearly as like, you know, damaging to your reputation or to, you know, the consideration of your compliance program than that happening like in your home country where everyone assumes that you have a handle on everything because it's stable and you should know it. So I say run hard at it Good and point. try to approach it differently and try to like build some coalitions within your company of people who say, hey, you know what? These compliance folks, they kind of get it. They kind of put their business hat on and they helped us keep from messing something up, didn't just keep us from doing our job. Let's turn topics. Uh, I've been really interested after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, put an exclamation point on it, of the shift in supply chains and what it, whether it's called reshoring, whether it's called bringing it, bringing it home, made in America, but there's now a concerted effort to move away from the supply chains that I grew up with just in time or lengthy global su supply chains starting in the 70s for the last 50 years. And I want to point to the semiconductor industry because that's deemed a national security interest. The Biden administration <clears throat> has funded a lot of money to get semiconductor plants built in the United States so the U.S. semiconductor industry will have a steady supply in the event of a dislocation with China. And really wanted to use that as a way to introduce how should companies think about compliance and ethics risk domestically inside the United States? Typically, all the people I work with are global or international companies. So they have FCPA exposure. But you can have just as high bribery and corruption or risks inside the United States. So are you guys having those sort of conversations Hey, what about your domestic business? How do you assess the risks of a change in supply chain to the United States? Where do you guys see that going? Listen, Tom, we have to build back. And this is part of that of, you know, I think it's it's something that is happening. And, you know, I think that if your company decides that, you know, you're going to respond to those incentives and start building there, I think in a lot of ways, you probably think that it's, an easier go at it because it's in the US and it's, you know, maybe more of a known quantity or whatever. And, you know, I think that you have to just be ready to figure out how you can reposition your team and your program and your oversight for a different mix of those risks. It's certainly not that like your risks go away because, oh, it's the US and like it's not China. So, you know, it's comparatively better. Like at the end of the day, Anytime you're doing a risk assessment, anytime you're trying to figure out like, hey, how to handle this stuff, it's not about is the risk zero or terrible. Usually the risks are all somewhere in the middle and right. you really just have to sort those. And, you know, we, we coach a lot at Ethico about 
you know, doing continuous improvement and we call it the Pareto process. And we have, we have programs that we run to get our quality better. And when you're doing that, you're not saying, you know, you're kind of never saying, Hey, is this good enough? And we just don't have to worry about it. You say, Hey, we're going to work on fixing something. We're going to make work on making something better. So what is at the top of that heap? and pick your scale one to 8,000 or one to 10. But on a one to 10 scale, if your China risks are average at an eight and your US risks average at a four, you're still gonna pick the top of that pile and say, hey, let's make those things better. So I think you have to just think about how you can help guide your team to not say, okay, well, this is a lot easier. Let's just kind of let it go. You still have to be, you know, I think influencing that and pointing your program at the biggest risks. And you have to just kind of reorient to say, hey, you know, how do we find maybe these more finer point risks instead of just trying to, you know, block against wholesale fraud or something like that? Yeah. And I think that, you know, this this process that Gio alluded to, I think it's a really freeing process. I think the ambiguity in something like this can often paralyze us and feel like we have to get the answer. And it, I've seen sort of it leads to, you know, the risk assessment itself being like the end all be all. I mean, the way to attack this thing is to kind of crowdsource a, a risk assessment to say, where do we all think the risks are? Obviously, that takes engagement and obviously that takes interaction with people on our team or people in other departments. But like what Gio is talking about is really this continuous improvement process, this iterative plan, do, check, act approach to improving the business process that, you know, that that is compliance. And that is extremely freeing because it's just about forward motion and it's just about increment. You know, we're really playing a game of incrementalism. We're never going to eliminate all the risk in our organization. There's always going to be, you know, an undulating floor of risk that we're traversing across, right? So this kind of a process of like getting in the habit of having a quick, easy way, kind of putting on that sort of consultant's hat and on the back of a napkin, figure out like where, where, where are 80% of my risks going to be coming from? And then assessing those things and then diving into that particular risk and just understanding that there's this sort of fractalization of Pareto principles across everything. Again, Gio alluded to it, but Pareto principle is just the 80-20 rule. That 80-20 rule is like a natural law and it, and it exists in every single process and it exists in your risk assessment and it exists in your manufacturing operation, right? So like if you find, you know, the couple of big risk areas, well, there's a couple of big, big like idiosyncratic risks in each one of those areas. And if you're not in that sort of iterative process and see the freedom that comes in, you know, the journey, not the destination of risk, risk elimination, the journey of, you know, a continuous improvement and a continuous, you know, attacking of the risks in, in the business, you do run the risk of being, <laughs> you do run the risk of being like paralyzed by the complexity of it. Like there's no right answer. You just need to know, you know, which way is the wind, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of blowing and start, start kind of whittling away at it. Let me turn now to something the Department of Justice brought up last October in the Monaco memo, and they've talked about it since then, which is clawbacks, clawbacks for senior execs. I want to leave it at that because I see a lot of problems if you take it below the senior exec level from the legal perspective. Do, do you guys have conversations with your clients about the incentive system part of a best practices compliance program, whether that's incentive of a part of your their discretionary bonus, whether it's incentive for those who do business ethically and compliance will be on the promotion track or on a faster promotion track. Disincentive used to be something along the lines of you'll be fired. But now the DOJ wants to put a fiscal, a monetary disincentive in place with a clawback. And I've just been giving a lot of thought. Is that an incentive that really means anything? Uh, or is is just a would lead to a level of severity that somebody doesn't want to 
cross. What are your guys' thoughts on clawbacks? I think they're a bad idea, Tom. Listen, I'm an incentives guy. I think that people respond to incentives. As a manager, you're looking at not just, you know, giving someone a bonus for something, but you incentivize people through your culture and through recognition and through team assignments and through, you know, a lot of those things. So when, you know, I certainly believe that when the right incentives in place, more of the right, you know, behavior is going to happen. But uh, I think that there's probably the headline problem of, well, is it going to be attributed properly? And is, you know, is it fair? Or, you know, are people going to just kind of shy back from it? There's a bunch of stuff we can talk about there. But the thing that comes to mind here is, it's probably not going to change behavior. I don't imagine this like ill-defined, not really sure, but we might come after you. And if this, you know, if we see this thing happening, then, you know, then we're going to take some money from you. I don't think it's going to change how people do their job. I think that generally people are bad at assessing risk. Generally people are bad as humans, no offense to all you humans out there, but just bad at calculating expected value in their head. And on top of that, you're asking people to do this who are not experts at evaluating risk. I think that it's a it's like a valiant idea to explore. And I, you know, I understand and maybe even applaud the spirit that I assume is behind it. You know, I like I think it's kind of driven by, hey, we got to do something. It's got to be better than it is. Maybe we do this like, you know, it's worth, you know, having a comment period around. But I just don't imagine somebody going to work on a Thursday trying to figure out how to get the project done that they've been working on for nine months and it's a month and a half overdue and they're coming up to a decision thinking, hmm, I wonder if I'm going to get a clawback for this. I just don't think it's going to happen. Well, I like to argue. So I'll just say that I think it's a good thing. I think it's been wait. I think we've been waiting for it for a long time. And I mean, if we're talking about incentives and there's new policies that are demanded that we put out about these clawbacks and assuming that, that they're not just you know paper lines, but they actually have some teeth, it's going to at least send a positive message with respect to the level of integrity we expect from folks and ultimately the monetary risk that they can suffer. It just kind of raises the stakes in my mind of, you know, signing off on financial statements and, you know, making sure that like this culture of integrity that we all, all executives say that they care about. Everybody says that they care about ethics. It's hitting guys in their pocketbook potentially and can cause, uh, you know, some change in behavior. What I would say, like, let's take this down to like the earth now, regardless of whether you think they work or you think they don't work, regardless of whether you think I'm better at arguing and debating than Geo is, I would be using this opportunity to gain more power in my organization and use it as, as a conversation starter with the executive team, with the board, with other people in the organization to not power for power's sake, but to gain more influence. Like, again, all the stuff we're talking about all the time is happening, you know, there's new things coming out that we can use to kind of reinforce our message or give ourselves more credibility or say, you know, hey, this is the reason why we need to have a culture of integrity. If everybody had a culture of integrity, then, you know, the SEC wouldn't need to put out these kind of clawback provisions and stuff like that. So I think it's all usable and it's all kind of, you know, I'm a very opportunistic person, as you know, like, I just think this is a, this is yet another great opportunity where you can take something that's coming down from on high and use it to make your little corner of the world a little bit better. Let me turn now to behavioral psychology in compliance programs and compliance discipline. I've long talked about one of the things I noticed that got me to notice you guys the most, Gio, was early on when you would videotape your talks to your team. And it seemed to be used a lot of behavioral 
psychology in those talks. But I wanted to maybe expand out some of the concepts I heard you talk about, whether it be a nudge, whether it be a push, whether it be a stop and think internal control, whatever it might be, incentives that you just talked about. Do compliance officers that you guys engage with on a daily basis, do they understand now they need to move beyond simply the legal based compliance program of thou shalt nots and we will spank you if you do program to have real effective training that leads to a positive outcome and those types of things are are you guys having those kinds of conversations so i think they get it um it's obviously a spectrum right i think folks get it i think they still struggle with like where do i start with it because it seems like such a big mountain to climb you know it's the basis of our job, right? Yes, we need to understand the rules. We need to have we need to have clarity of like where the lines on the road are. But our job is to actually make sure that people drive within those lines of the road, right? So to me, the whole game is behavioral psychology. The whole game is changing human behavior, not by compulsion, but by persuasion to adhere to, you know, not just as a base level, adhere to like the rules that are in place or the rules that are best for the business, but at, at that next level, that higher, you know, that higher actualization level of like being a true human sensor, that's when you can start crowdsourcing risk management at scale. I just think folks really struggle with like, well, how do I actually do that? How do I actually get this engagement? I think it's a, probably a lot easier. Well, I mean, I think it's absolutely easy. Not that it's easy, I should say. Like, it's definitely like you can affect it. Um, it's going to take time and sort sort of consistency, but it's not like like you're one person trying to push push a train. Um, you can really light a fire, and you can light that fire if you take a if you take advantage of like the humanity that is inherent to your organization. Assuming that you're not you know the compliance officer for a a manufacturing facility that you know a million foot you know man, manufacturing facility that's all robot driven and it takes one guy to run. Like most of us are in a knowledge work economy where we are our work. We must engage the human sensors in our organization if we are ever going to start crowdsourcing risk management at scale. But yeah, I just, I see folks kind of spinning their wheels, but like they understand that we have to elevate from that sort of rules, thou shalt not sort of era, as you described it, to something more. Yeah. And I would just say that, you know, if you feel like you're there and you get it and you want it, but it's not working and you feel trapped. Also, here's an indicator. If you're blaming a bunch of people around your organization for the state of compliance, and saying that, you know, well, the CEO doesn't get it and that's why we can't get our budget or something like that. Um, if you want to see that change, then I think you got to figure out how to do it. And I would just say, like, you have to admit that you may not have the skills, but you can acquire the ability and you have to believe that in yourself. And you also have to admit that they probably didn't teach you how to do that in law school. And they probably didn't teach you how to do that in undergrad. And they probably didn't teach you how to do that when you got your, your compliance certification. The things that we're talking about are skills for mid-level and senior leadership in an organization that you need to kind of learn on the job. And if you don't have someone above you, if you can't look up on the org chart and find someone who can help mentor you, then reach out to other people around the compliance and ethics community and start talking to people about, hey, I've been spending a lot of time over the past few years just talking to people about what do you think about this regulation? What do you think about this program? I want to spend some time now. This is the year, 2023 is the year where I want to figure out how to be a better leader and influencer outside of my direct reports right. in the organization and get some help with it. Because there are a bunch of people who are doing it well or have great, great ideas about it or are, you know, you know, working on it and getting some traction or whatever it is. And you got to know that there's something 
that's not working, it's on you to acquire the skills and go out and get those skills. And you got to figure out how to balance, you know, your learning and getting out of your, outside of your comfort zone so that you can do that. But it's possible. Listen, all of this stuff, like everyone in these roles, listen, the CMO wasn't taught this in undergrad. The CTO right. was not taught how to advocate to the board when they got their master's in computer engineering or whatever it is. Uh, every, like everyone who rises to the level of like a, a company wide influence, whether that's in the C-suite or just because they have the relationships and they can get things done, you kind of learn it on the job and you can learn it, but you got to focus on it. And I'll just say this, you're never going to be successful in something that you don't nerd out on. Like any of your mm -hmm. success that you look back on, it's because you've nerded out on something. And so if this is the thing that you need to do to get better, understanding behavioral psychology or understanding organizational behavior, there are tons of books that you can get on the, the subject. Read Influence, read Persuasion, read books about blind spots and logical fallacies and, you know, human behavior. How do people think? Read a marketing book or, you know, if you don't want to reach out to marketing, go get a marketing book and see how, you know, decision making happens. Once you start putting some of those inputs into your mind, they're going to naturally mix around with all the other things that, you're, that, that you've gotten really, really good at. And there's some really interesting combinations that come out of it. But you just have to exhibit that like high agency, grab a book watch a masterclass or something and just start, start working again. Again, it's like, or start working it in again. It's a, it's a game of incrementalism. You start working it in and then before you know it, your entire program is different. And the impact that you're having is, is way different And the types of conversations you're having with other leaders in your organization are, you know, light years from, you know, the kitty table that you feel stuck at right now. Let me turn to the current work environment. I don't know what the ethical policy is, Obviously, two years ago this time, we were in uh, working from home. Then we moved to return to work. Many companies have a hybrid model. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on what works for Ethico? Because I want to ask you to speculate on what works for other companies. But if a company has a hybrid model, if a company uh, has a, still has a work from home model, how do you help them understand how to maintain a culture, how to maintain a culture of speak up, how to maintain a culture of trust for employees that they, you know, will pick up the phone or will engage if they see something. So I was wondering if you could maybe tackle that, those plethora of issues from the status of work location issue. Yeah, we run a mix of a bunch of different things. We run people fully in office. We run people in and out of the office throughout the week you know, in a hybrid setup. And some people who are completely remote, we got you know, employees all over the continent. So, you know, I think that the biggest advice that I would give is just you have to understand that the playing field has changed. And then I think the next step is to look back at whatever you know and feel was working before and just say, okay, how do I repurpose this? There are teams that, you know, used to be in office and now they're remote and they used to have, they used to like socialize a lot just throughout the workday. And you have to build that into, let's do a Zoom meeting where we can kind of chat about this stuff and we can, build that culture. There are some things that, you know, you used to onboard people. And so, you know, I'm not talking about kind of speak up culture. I'm just talking about the way that you do the, these like parallels. Well, people used to get onboarded because they'd be kind of sitting around and they come into the office and we talk about that call that we just got off of and they'd learn how the senior people do it. Well, if that's not just happening by osmosis because people are around, then you have to find ways to kind of mock that or, you know, fill that gap through a screen basically, or, you know, some other things that you can do. 
So I think you have to, you know, when you start talking about your compliance program, you have to look at that and say, well, whatever. We used to have posters. Well, what do we do for that now? Well, get a compliance portal where it's kind of like the homepage where your employees can go to because they're probably not going to be walking by that post in the, in the break room. A lot of them just like it blends into the background anyways. Uh, and, you know, there, there's other stuff that used to, you know, get managers, hopefully, to reinforce compliance concepts or remind people about training when they had an all-hands meeting. And now maybe they're in a different type of meeting and it's a Zoom and they're rushing through stuff and no one's paying attention. You got to find some ways to kind of get into that conversation. Maybe you make a video that they can play or whatever it is. And then you just have to look at what you were doing before and say, okay, well, that used to work due to the way that people were located as, you know, where their bodies were while they're working. Well, there's a concept that's being done there. There's a transfer of you know, thought and trust and, you know, information and all of that. And you have to just try to figure out how to do that on a new format. I mean, I think companies are going to probably start, start swinging back. I think they're going to swing back to more and more doing away with the hybrid. We'll probably, we'll probably never like eliminate it fully. So, I mean, it's going to be interesting. I think like, uh, you know, I think Twitter or, you know, Elon Musk maybe like kicked it off. And then now you're seeing like other guys be like, okay, cool. Everybody back in the office. And some folks that have been sort of uh, affected by that, I think we're like a little bit jarred at how fast that was. You know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, the whole thing has just been very interesting. I, like I said, I don't know if we'll ever go back to, um, you know, fully everybody 100% in, in office. I think there'll, there'll always be that. But I think there's kind of some arguments on both sides, you know. For some roles, you know, folks seem to get more distracted in a public setting. You know, a lot of our offices are set up in like these open work environments and frankly, for the last couple of years, right? Folks have been able to, you know, put their headphones on or just work in their, in their home without those, you know, distractions of people, of people walking by the implications of, on like their work product, you know, from a productivity standpoint of being back in a sort of a group work setting, you know, there's going to be some, some more, some more adjustment there, but I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of an interesting time. It's like, as soon as we think something's sort of stable, then, you know, it like violently reverts back. Version of the mean is one of the strongest forces in the universe, gents. That's right. It's <laughs> absolutely right. Let me turn to Chat GPT, and I was wondering if you guys have looked at it, have oh, tested, yeah. it, have thought about it, have thought about integrating it into Ethico, have thought about how it may be a tool you can use. So, where are the Gallo brothers on Chat GPT? I am I'm about oh, to get a tattoo of it. I'm about to get a Chat <laughs> GPT tattoo. I am all in on it, man. They they came out with a prompt. There's a prompt to get around all the ethical like controls that are in place, and you can ask it like wild questions. It'll give you like the meth recipe. So I'm not endorsing that, of course. Uh, I'm not a DIY meth guy by any means, but <laughs> <laughs> but actually, what what meth guys are not DIY? I mean, that's kind of how meth is made. Anyways, uh, the bathtub of our generation. <laughs> But like ChatGPT is like wild. You know, this article came out last week that it passed the um, the the Google like coding test to get a hundred eighty three thousand dollar job. I mean, that is nuts. So it's wildly powerful. I think it's only going to get bigger and better. I mean, especially now you start to see a company like Google kind of Google feels like a little bit on its heels with this thing, and they're trying to build something themselves. So I just think you know, still trying. Still, but I'm just saying, like this is 1996. Remember when when the internet came out in ni 1996? And everybody was like, you know, there was 
they were scared about it. Krugman is saying it's just, it's just basically a soup, souped up fax machine. Fast forward and see like what that sort of inflection point was for the like development of our economy and stuff like that. I mean, we are right at that same inflection point with, with this thing. It's wildly powerful things that, you know, copy for your website, copy for blog posts, things like, you know, you want to get a script going for a, a screenplay. It's a great launching out point. I think. So I saw a video you guys did or a podcast you and Matt did recently, and he brought up sort of some of the darker sides of it that I was, I had not even thought about at all. But like the fact that, that this thing can like rip out code, the implications of this are like wild. I don't think we've even started to, to think about it, but to your question is like, is there a business use? Yeah. I think there's like countless business uses. Um, yeah. I can kind of go on about this for like hours, but I'd love to hear what Gio has to say. So I would, so Yes, love all of it. I'm trying to decide if I want like a full back tattoo or just like on my arm. I gotta, I gotta put something over the Bitcoin tattoo that like is not cool anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I am joking. In case you guys, in case any of the audience don't know this, uh, I because I have an Ethereum tattoo, not Bitcoin. I'm an Ethereum guy. Still joking. <laughs> so I would say, if you're in compliance you should look at this as a knowledge acquisition tool. So yep. if you're in marketing, you're probably using this to write copy. And you, you know, if you're not familiar with it, you can go to the website, OpenAI, ChatGPT, and say, you know, you could say, write me an email to my boss that explains five reasons why I can't work on Friday and request that he would pre-approve PTO or whatever. And then it'll, you know, and make it 400 words or 30 words or whatever. And it'll just do it. And it'll be like probably better than you're going to write. So like, that's, that's what it kind of is. It's like, you know, just ask it a question or tell it to do something and pretty much anything that it can answer in words or like characters, it's going to answer. I'd say if you're in compliance, start using it to let your team educate themselves and research faster. So it's a great research tool. You can say, you know, summarize the five latest changes to GDPR law and, and each bullet should be 200 words. And instead of like reading a bunch of stuff, you'll do it and then you know, and then there's the question of like, well, is it accurate? And there's that question. You have that question on pretty much every website that you read. <laughs> if you go to the Tom Fox Law blog, then you don't have that question because you know it's verified and there's it's true. One pretty much every internet, you don't have to ask that question. That's time. yeah. Pretty much every other place on the internet, you have to ask like, well, who wrote this? Was this like you know, fourteen-year-old right. intern, or like is this written by the legislator or one of their interns or whatever? But use it as a knowledge acquisition tool or, you know, give me 15 ideas for compliance week or whatever it is and just see what it does. And some, you know, it's kind of fun and interesting, like, oh, wow, that's cool. But also, like, once you get past the novelty, it can be really useful. And it's also got a great logo for a tattoo. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a great idea. Take, take your policy and drop it in and say, give me, summarize this in a fifth grade reading level or summarize this into bullets. And it'll spit something out and you say, summarize it more. I mean, you can really chew things up with it and you don't have to like, you know, waste a bunch of mental calories on something that's already written to make it a little bit more sort of pal palatable for folks. So, I mean, the business use, use cases are, we've only started to even scratch the surface of this, of this whole thing. I saw a video of a guy, he's like a famous DJ and it was a video of this, like, you know, this concert he was doing or whatever. And he played some music and he had like this Eminem, these Eminem lyrics come out and no one had heard the lyrics before. The whole audience went nuts because Eminem, Eminem had given him like a little rap for his song. And then it cut to like him talking about it. And he said, I went to chat GPT and I said, write me 
you know, write me a, a rap in Eminem style. And he said, I took those, those things to another AI. And I said, read these out to me in, a, in Eminem's voice. And he took that audio and he played it. And so, I mean, when these things start like mixing together, there's going to be like wild changes over the next five years that things that we can't even think of. So if you hear Eminem on our, like any ads, it might be Eminem, but it might be AI. You know what I'm saying? You don't know. Just I want to end with something that I thought did not get nearly enough press, but I thought was one of the most significant sort of events around anti-corruption that I'd seen in a long time. And that was the Pope in Nigeria uh, on mission, giving a speech largely to younger people. And he was very forceful when he's, he urged the crowd to cry out no to corruption or some phrase similar to that. And it was I do remember Pope Francis has has spoken out against corruption before. I don't want to suggest he hasn't. But this seemed to me to be on a very different level. It was a, a very public uh, statement. It was a public statement to the faithful, and it was a statement that the faithful fully embraced. So I was just wondering kind of what your thoughts are when we have the Pope in a religious talk, or at least not a secular talk, uh, spouting anti-corruption, and that corruption is against the Christian principles that he leads the Catholic Church on. Well, I mean, I think I think there's a common thread that runs through all virtually all major religions, and it's about sort of being good, and it's about, you know, fighting these things that I think we're all trying to kind of, kind of fight against. So I think its presence in that speech was, you know, kind of appropriate. I mean, it was a massive audience, I think. It was like over 65,000 people or something. Right. And it's an important message, you know. It's an important message. I mean, you know, he is... May, he's a major figure in the world, and I'm sure everybody is going to remember. I don't know. I mean, everyone's going to remember as they grow up that you know they were they were there, and if they if they leave that speech with some memory of that sort of broader message, then that I mean that's not a negative. You know what I'm saying? Uh, there's a lot of work to be done from a corruption standpoint, of course, and so I say good on him for kind of bringing that bringing that out and taking advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, I'd say. Send that speech to your CEO if he doesn't like ethics and compliance and say, hey, will, will you listen to the Pope? <laughs> uh, no, I think. Uh, <laughs> On a fifth grade uh, no, I great. Like, <laughs> I think it's an interesting kind of cultural reality that he is highlighting that and that it's notable because, you know, to Nick's point that, you know, that should be, you know, I mean, like he talked about a lot of other things about inalienable rights and you know respect of people and stuff like that in some ways that's kind of table stakes but i think like the notable thing is he's not just talking about you know be kind to your neighbor and you know kind of help the poor but he's talking about business transactions and i think the extension of these religious principles into the workplace is appropriate right like like if you should be good to your neighbor you should be good to your desk mate and those shouldn't be two different things so you know i think it's Hopefully it bodes well. And, you know, hopefully some CEOs in Nigeria were listening and they're like, okay, well, we got to do that. But I mean, like, I think the fact that it has to be said in that context is representative of, you know, how kind of core that is to that, you know, uh, that culture, so to speak, uh, where a lot of people have, you know, a lot of people have kind of shunned that country for its corruption. But, you know, in order to bring light into dark places, somebody has to go there and, you know, try to change it. So, you know, good on him for doing it. I hope it, you know, has, has an impact. I think we'll, we'll have to see whether that impact kind of starts at the top or maybe that impact, you know, is on 
the younger generation and we're gonna have to wait a generation for them to kind of come into power and change it. I think there's a lot of like vested interests that, you know, have a lot of, you know, I don't know, inertia for the economy that is like in many ways supported by that type of bribery and stuff like that. I mean, he had, he had the whole crowd chanting it, no to corruption or something like that, which was pretty crazy. Right. Well, gents, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you all both. It was a ton of fun. I, As you know, I have two criteria for podcast success. One is how much did I learn? And two, how much fun did I have? We scored 11 on both. Wow. So, goes up to 11. Uh, goes to 11. <laughs> you need that extra kick, go to 11. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks so much. See you next time. All right, thanks, Tom. Cheers. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the GalloCast. I hope you'll join Nick and I in January where we get back together for another edition. It's been a ton of fun bringing this podcast series to you. It's uh, really more than uh, fun than a barrel of monkeys recording it with these guys. They're so great together. And I hope you get a sense of uh, what they're like from this podcast. If you'd like to see the video version of this, check out my YouTube channel, the Compliance Podcast Network, under the podcast GalloCast on YouTube. I hope you will have a very safe and joyous holiday season and new year. We will look forward to visiting you with you in 2023. If you haven't done so, I would appreciate it if you could rate and review this podcast on uh, iTunes. It would greatly help our rankings and get out the word about the uh, GalloCast beyond the compliance community. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to seeing you in 2023.